If you're between the ages of four to eight, you're excused to kids' club. What authority do you have to do this? It was a question that was asked of me in the early 2000s, late at night, while working at a summer camp in Colorado. I was serving as a head leader of the camp. One of my many jobs at the camp was to corral some of the 500 high school kids back into their cabins at night, and more importantly, to help them stay there. But on this particular night, we had a rowdy group of guys from Texas who were pretty bent on climbing the bell tower all night long and ringing the bell. This required not a whole lot of sleep for us. And we caught them three or four times, and every time we caught them, the more out of, bent out of shape they became about it. What authority do you have, they would ask. And then what they would lean into here is, why do you get to make the rules and not us? Why do you get to make the rules? Now, I would laughingly tell you that many times at camp we would laugh that if the teenagers ever got organized and together, we'd get run over quickly. Well, there weren't very many adults in charge. But they always wanted to know why we made the rules and not them. And while we think about that coming out of the mouths of a teenager, we know that it's not just them. Often this mentality exists in us. And it's this mentality that Jesus is going to take on as we continue into our series into the parables. As we've been walking through this summer, we're calling our series The Storyteller. Remembering how Jesus used stories to teach his disciples, to train his disciples, and to reveal the kingdom. And in so doing, Jesus is teaching us, and he is training us about the kingdom. So if we've walked through this, we've seen Jesus teach, and we've saw how the kingdom of the Father is opposite of the kingdom of this world, and all the values are different than the values of the world. And Jesus calls us to follow him, and to come into his kingdom, and in doing so, he's taught us to be generous sowers. He's taught us to press on and sowing even when the fruits don't seem faithful. He's taught us to take heart that his kingdom will be built all over the earth. He's taught us that the kingdom is worth giving absolutely everything up for. He's taught us that he values one so much that he'd leave the 99. He taught us forgiveness as a testimony that we have been forgiven and a tool for showing others the gospel. And he taught us in walking out that we live out a lifestyle marked with forgiveness and not entitlement. So this morning as we step into this 10th parable, Jesus' audience changes. Because no longer is he principally teaching his disciples. Now he's come into Jerusalem and he's going to start confronting the Pharisees in front of his disciples with some additional kingdom principles. So I want you this morning to turn your Bibles to Matthew 21. If you've got one, open it. If you don't, there's a red one in front of you. We would love for you to see that this is the Word of God we are teaching you and not Ben's opinion, because that wouldn't get us very far. At the beginning of Matthew 21, you see Jesus coming into Jerusalem. He's coming back for what will be his final time in his last week. And he enters in the city on a, as its king, riding high on a donkey, an event commonly called the Triumphal Kingdom. We celebrate that on Palm Sunday. 
and he receives the worship of the people. And as the people begin to worship Jesus, what this does is it starts to cause people to ask the question, who is this? So having come into the city, Jesus goes to the temple. It would be the place Jesus would go. He's a religious leader. The temple is where he would head. Because his kingdom is not an earthly kingdom, but a spiritual kingdom, when he walks into the temple, he's not pleased to find an earthly kingdom in his temple. And if you remember the story, he wasn't very pleased with the people, and he wasn't pleased with their worship. If you lean in, you find him pushing over tables, building a whip, and running off the livestock in an attempt to return it to a house of worship. Not a picture of Jesus we often think about, but a picture of Jesus in the scriptures nonetheless. The interesting thing about that story, though often not as emphasized, is how immediately following that, many hurt and broken people walk into the temple, and he begins to heal them. And he starts to love and and heal these people, it draws even greater indignation from the high priests and the elders. The Bible calls these people the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You would know the term Pharisees. These are the, the people who have all the rules, who expect you to live up to all the rules. They're rule followers, they're religious types, and Jesus will begin to bicker with them increasingly more and more and more because Jesus starts to point out their hypocrisy. And and the more that he heals and blesses the very people that they want to hold out, the more they despise him and plan to kill him, you see the contrast setting up. So Jesus goes away for a night, returns back to the temple the next day, and he begins to teach. Opening up the word of God and explaining the, the scriptures, and again the religious types appear. This time with a question. The same question that I got from high school kids. By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you the authority to act like this? So Jesus puts a question before them. Where did the baptism of John the Baptist come from? Did it come from heaven or did it come from man? Now to you, you have probably never considered the question. It's probably not something you ponder on. But it's an intentional question Jesus is asking to strike to the heart of these men. Because what he's doing is he's challenging them. He's challenging their social structure. And he's created a great quandary for them. Because here you have a group of men who like to follow rules. But who like to be appreciated by the crowd. And so when they start to ponder this, they wonder... If we say his baptism came from a man, then the crowd will reject them. And that's not what they're interested in. Just as a side note, if you want to follow somebody who's worried about the crowd, it's not a a good guy to follow. You don't follow the crowd's opinion. Crowds don't make great decisions for themselves. That's just a sidebar. They're afraid of the crowd... So they don't want to make the decision that they know to be right. But they can't say it comes from God because that legitimatizes John the Baptist. But more than that, it reveals the shortcomings of their own ministries. So they don't know how to answer. So having two answers they don't want to give, they give the only thing they can say. We don't know. And in response to that, Jesus gives them this parable this morning. The context for our tenth parable in Matthew 21, 28 through 32. 
Matthew 28. And what do you think? A man, a man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he said, I will not. But afterwards he changed his mind and he went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he said, I, and he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of these two did the will of the father? Now in this parable, Jesus is setting up two contrasting pictures. A son who says he'll go into the field and then, who says he will not go into the field and then goes and and serves faithfully. And a son who says he will not go, or says he will go and then chooses not to. The question that Jesus poses is who did the will of the Father? Who's honoring God? And that brings to bear the second contrast put out in that same parable. The John the Baptist, who did not look the part but was faithful, and the Pharisees, who outwardly looked the part but were not faithful, And we're going to continue to lean into that. But first, we have to appreciate that you have a father who owns a vineyard, which is the most common agricultural job of the day. And he talks to both of his sons, and he sends them to the field. And both of these sons, both of their responses would have absolutely offended Jewish sensibilities. You see, the first son was openly disobedient. His denial of working for his father would have been viewed not as a son making a poor decision. Not unlike all the times as a child that my mom would ask me to clean my room and I'd choose not to. It's actually far greater than that. No, this kind of rejection would have been seen as an outright rejection of his father, a denial of his very person. It would have been unthinkable. So no doubt, hearing this parable, when Jesus describes this first son, that this would be the son that you would not relate to. For he clearly would be the lost one. This would be the black sheep of the family. You'd want nothing to do with this guy. So when Jesus moves on to the second son, no doubt these religious types, these Pharisees and Sadducees, start to nod with approval. This is the guy they're going to like. This is going to be the right answer. His father asked him to go into the field, and he was compliant. He agreed to go. He honored his mom and his dad. And then comes the shocking detail, that which would not have been expected, the detail that would set them back. He didn't go. He didn't follow through. He wasn't faithful. So Jesus' question, what do you think? The question comes down to a faithful black sheep or the good apple who's unfaithful. What do you think? This had to put a lot of tension into the lives of his listeners. Just like if you lean into it, it puts tension in our lives too. Because the question is being asked is, what do you value? What do you value? Because the tension that gets brought up here is one of authority and not of obedience. See, if the issue is obedience, then the point of the story becomes rule following, the very thing Jesus is talking against. See, the issue here is authority, because when you recognize that obedience flows from authority, 
You see that obedience follows what you believe in, what you hold high, that you obey what has authority in your life. So this decision that has to be made here brings us back to the original question. Where does Jesus' authority come from? And where does ours? The Pharisees had to deal with this. They had to wrestle with it. And so must we. Am I about what Jesus has called me to be about? Or am I about what I think I should be about? Or perhaps more simply put, am I following Jesus the way he called me to follow him? Or am I following him in a way that makes me feel like I'm following him? We're dealing with feelings now. So let me illustrate it for you in a couple of other ways. When I was a seminary student, there are not a whole lot of jobs you can get on campus, but one of them is being a grader for a professor. What happens in this job is students write papers, and you get paid to grade them. It's an easy enough job. But here's the crazy challenge. The teachers would give their students a syllabus, and along with the syllabus would be a grading rubric. I didn't know the word before I got to school. But it tells you how you will be graded on all of your papers. They had it. I had it. We knew the expectation. We knew what was wanted. It was all spelled out. It would say something like this. Write about the relationship between this and that, and then comment on how this and that and the other are involved. It's not hard. It's simple. You read the directions. It would be clear. What you need to do is write about this, that, and the other. But you wouldn't believe the number of papers that we got turned in that never mentioned this or that or the other. You would not believe the number of assignments that got turned in where it seemed as if people were making up their own understanding. I had to grade things that weren't even in the same state, the same country as what was being asked. It was an impossible task. Students, free advice. Read the instructions and do them. You'll get way better grades. Freelancing in academia is not a good idea. Or to put it another way, I once heard Francis Chan use this illustration. He said, one day I went and I asked my daughter to clean her room. He went on to say, I wouldn't be pleased if she had just memorized my command, clean your room. I wouldn't have been pleased if she invited all of her friends over to talk about my command, clean your room. I wouldn't have been pleased if she spent hours praying about how others needed to clean their rooms. What I wanted was for her to clean her room What obedience looked like was her cleaning her room. And is our Heavenly Father any different? Friends, when you write papers that don't line up with the requirements, your professor is not the authority, you are. And when your parents ask you to clean your room and you don't, your parents are not your authority, you are. And when we pursue rule following and self-righteousness, God is not our authority. He is not our God. We are. And what Jesus does in this parable is to expose the Pharisees as the good apple who happens to be unfaithful. The rule followers who on the outside look like they've got everything together and on the inside are absolutely shallow, hollow, and unfaithful. They knew it. He knew it. And we know it. And they knew the answer. They put it out in verse 31. It was the first one. It was the one who said he wouldn't go, 
and then chose obedience. And when that one chooses obedience, he rightly acknowledges his father. Though he was disobedient at first, he recognizes the obedience, he recognizes the authority of his father, he considers it, and he chooses to acknowledge the authority of his father reconciling himself to him. Friends, all of us felt this picture, for we've all chosen to disobey God at one point or another. The question becomes, will we then reconcile ourselves to him? Or will we continue in our disobedience? To make his point ever more so clear, Jesus points out even more absolute moral failures who are headed into the kingdom. He points at tax collectors and prostitutes in verse 31. Let's continue to read. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you. Now, remember, he's talking to the religious types of the day, those that everybody would point at and go, they've got it together. They're doing the right thing. Those are the good guys. They're living the good life. The tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Remember, this is Jesus talking. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your mind and believe him. Why are the tax collectors and the prostitutes going into the kingdom? Why are they held higher than the rule followers? The people who outwardly look like they have everything together? Look carefully. Because they believed. Because they believed. We walked through Hebrews 11 a year and a half ago. And the whole statement that comes back through through Hebrews over and over again is he believed and it was accredited to him as righteousness. Friends, it's belief that changes things. Not right action, not moral activity, and not rule following. See, what Jesus is doing here to illustrate the kingdom is painting a picture that you cannot do it on your own. It's not merely about obedience. Because if it were, you couldn't measure up. If it were, your ability to follow rules does not exceed that of the Pharisees. You can't be good enough. And that's a great thing. Because it emphasizes the gospel, does it not? When you can't be good enough, And all it says is that the one who was good enough died in your place. The one who was good enough stood in the spot to take the very thing that you and I deserved, and that was punishment. And Jesus took that upon himself, and we are declared righteous because of it. We believe in him. We believe in that what he did at the cross was enough, that it was sufficient, and that it's not about my good works, your good works, his good works, their good works. 
It's not about rule following. It's not about doing things the right way. It's about believing in Jesus. Friends, the gospel calls us not to purify ourselves to please God, but rather to believe God and then reflect His purity. Do you see the difference? You don't have to clean yourself up for Him. I once heard someone say, you have to catch a fish before you clean it. It's a good adage. For you couldn't clean a fish before you catch it, and the same is the true with the kingdom. The fish has to be caught first before it's clean. A cleaned fish before it's caught is a dead fish. And it wouldn't be worth eating. We believe in Jesus. And in believing in Him, we are caught. And then He works to purify us. It's not our works. It's not even our obedience. It's Jesus. He is our purity. He is our clean. You'll let me be nerdy. This is our justification. This is our sanctification that Jesus Christ died on a cross in our place. And in doing so, we are declared righteous. That God the Father, who is holy, 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 looks down on you and does not see you, he sees his Son. So your attempts to be righteous, your attempts to act like you could live in such a way to earn God's favor, mock the cross. They say the blood is insufficient. Friends, let us not be guilty of that. Let us lean into the gospel of Jesus Christ where we recognize that our purity comes not from our outward obedience, but from Jesus. And let us live a life called to reflect His glory and His purity to the world. See, that's what Jesus is training His disciples to do. Not be good moral men but to come to Him and reveal the kingdom to the world. That the world would know the Father, and the world knows the Father when we reflect Him. That's what's going on as Jesus is teaching them about the kingdom principles. He's training them. And He's fighting back on everyone who will distort the gospel. He's fighting back on these religious types who want to assert, this is good enough. This is right. Look at me. I follow the rules. Jesus says no. Where does your authority come from? Friends, when we make it about what we can accomplish, when we make it about what we can do, our authority comes from us. And that is entirely dangerous. When we lean into the gospel and we live, capitalizing on several weeks of teaching, as forgiven people, recognizing that the debt that we owe our Father is in the billions upon billions, and we live as people who are forgiven so we can forgive, that reflects the gospel. 
And that denies our self-righteousness. And it makes Jesus our master. In Matthew 6, 24, Jesus says this, No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one or love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And in Matthew 6, Jesus is putting a contrast between God and money, but make no mistake, you could fill any other idol in its place, including self-righteousness. You cannot serve your own desire for self-righteousness and serve Jesus. You will love one and hate the other, be devoted to one and despise the other. Friends, what we have in the gospel, what we have in the Bible, is a call to die to yourself and to live for Jesus Christ. To appreciate that what he did at the cross is more than sufficient than anything you'll ever think, do, or accomplish. It covers it all. Don't make the mistake of thinking that your righteousness, your works, and your accomplishments can please God. Nothing pleases Him but faith. And faith comes in believing in Jesus, the Son of God, who died in our place. Your righteousness cannot exceed that of the Pharisees. Jesus made that clear in the Bible. We cannot be good enough. We cannot earn our way in. Jesus confronts the Pharisees with this passage and teaching the kingdom principles. He leans in pretty heavy. And for the next two parables, he's leaning on the Pharisees a whole lot further to reveal distortions of the gospel, to reveal distortions of the kingdom that we're going to keep walking into as we finish out our summer series. But hold on to this. The tax collectors and the prostitutes believe. I don't know how worthy you feel. I don't know how sufficient you feel for what Jesus did. But when Jesus says the tax collectors and the prostitutes, he's pulled the lowest of the low of the low, 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 from the culture from which they walked into and used them as exemplary. And what was exemplary of them was not their ability to follow rules. What was exemplary of them was that they believed. And belief is what was required, the entrance into the kingdom according to Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Righteous Father, thank you for your word that we hold it high and we hold on to it and cling to it. Father, it would be so easy for me and for so many of us to think that our faith, that following Jesus is about getting it right. That it's about following the right rules, making the list and doing them check by check by check. And what, where your word confronts us in that is that it's about belief and not obedience that brings us to salvation. It's about belief and not obedience that pleases God. 
Father, may we not be a people who seek after our own self-righteousness, but may we be a people who live in awe of what Jesus Christ did at the cross and how his death paid our debt of billions upon billions, a debt we never could have paid. Father, may we accept the teaching of your Son that our righteousness will get us nowhere. May we believe in your Son more and more and more and more. And may our lives reflect his character and his glory and his purity and his righteousness. Father, the world would see you at work. Father, we love you. And we love your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.